0: and welcome back to the sixth and final installment of Queer in College, a short podcast miniseries about the queer college student experience. Today I am so excited to welcome Reverend Kate Tabor, who serves as the Associate University Chaplain at Furman University, as we dive into topics of sexuality and spirituality, and how to support students who may be questioning or may have been harmed by religious institutions. Um, Kate works with Furman students as they ask vital questions of meaning, purpose, identity, and belief. Um, She offers one-on-one care and support and works with Furman's Religious Council, she co-directs the exploration of vocation and ministry program, and she offers workshops, internships, and programming on a wide range of topics from healthy sexuality to interfaith leadership and racial justice. Prior to coming to Furman, Reverend Tabor worked as the facilitator for peacemaking for the Presbyterian Church in Israel and Palestine from 2013 to 2017. She previously served a congregation in downtown Atlanta, and she is a graduate of Coe College and Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, Please join me in this exciting conversation with Reverend Kate Tabor. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure, especially with you Jesse. Oh, thank you. Um, I wanted to start just to get let our audience get to know you a little better. Um, so do you mind describing kind of your own journey um, in whatever amount of detail you want with spirituality and um, and what motivates you to work with college aged students. Sure.
1: I think in some ways my story is going to sound pretty cliche because it's about my formative experience as a young adult myself. Um, well, and the intersection with my spirituality is it's all wrapped up for me. So I was raised atheist. Um, I, my mom did start attending a Unitarian Universalist church and taking me and my sister when I was in middle school. Um, so that's the only sort of tradition that I was familiar with. But I was, I was raised in rural Nebraska, um, so a very culturally Christian area. And I was always aware of Christianity and definitely felt quite a bit the outsider um, in that community and in my school and among my friends. Um, and honestly, quite drawn to Christianity, but it wasn't a welcome conversation in my household. Um, it wasn't actually a safe thing to discuss with friends just because of that outsider um sort of dynamic. So it was really college where it was the first place I felt safe and free to explore the possibility of um, Christianity and faith community, um, spiritual mentorship and all that stuff. And um, I think that's the case in different ways for a lot of students that college because of its unique nature of being set apart, often geographically, um, from your community of origin, your family of origin, your faith community of origin, um, that it's just a unique opportunity for young adults who are coming into awareness of differing identities in so many different ways. They're also being tasked, challenged, to think critically about the world and themselves and their contexts in new ways through their classes, et cetera. I think it's just this, um, you know, ripe moment for most people um, to critically engage with their beliefs and values and identity, all of which is tied up in spirituality. And it was the case for me. So I knew that I wanted to explore Christianity, sort of like my secret rebel side, wanting wanting to explore um, Bible study and things that I just like, it was really taboo in my household. Honestly, um, I told my mom when I was twelve that I was interested in being a Christian, and she cried. So,
0: um,
1: <laughs> so not not most people's experience, um, but it meant that finding faith community felt very precious and scary and special to me as a college student. And so, when I arrived at my undergrad, which was a tiny liberal arts school in Iowa. I, the, there was no chaplain at the time they were between chaplains and, um, there was one campus ministry and it was quite active and I got involved with it, but it was fairly, I was in college starting in 2002 and the conversations at the time around theology, honestly centered completely around LGBT inclusion, Mm -hmm. mostly, gay and lesbian inclusion um, or exclusion. And so it was really the predominant topic of conversation. And I had been raised, um, you know, I grew up babysitting for a lesbian couple. Um, My, I watched the UU church my mom attended, um, go through the process of becoming open and affirming. Mm. And so I really struggled a lot with being presented with the perspective that being a Christian meant loving the sinner and hating the sin, even conceptualizing homosexuality as a sin was really deeply troubling for me. And I wrestled my whole like first semester in college with that dilemma. Um, And honestly, I remember just grieving so much that I was going to have to give up Jesus because I just couldn't believe that homosexuality was a sin like I was like I'm trying to believe it and I just can't believe it like it's just not in me to get there right. and so I think I have to say goodbye to Jesus and I've found Jesus really compelling and so I'm really sad about that and I'm gonna grieve it but like that's where I am And then my college chaplain started um, my second semester of my freshman year, and I had some medical incidents that she ended up being notified about. This is one way that chaplains get connected to students, is we often are notified of things like losses or medical crises, and chaplains reach out, and that's what happened to me. And in the midst of having this passing medical crisis, I got to know this chaplain who first of all, advocated for me in medical settings. So that's a bond (laughs) and very vulnerable and strong bond um, to have that experience. But then she also became a place where I felt my very tentative spirituality was affirmed. i had always given other people a lot of authority to tell me what Christianity was coming from the outside. And she was the first person to say, that my experience of God and of spirituality was just as valid as anyone who was raised in the church, mm-hmm. that I was just as beloved by God. And that I had just as much capability of interpreting the Bible for myself and theology for myself and deciding what I believed about the characteristics of the God that I prayed to were. Um, and that was like addictive. <laughs> like it was so compelling to me. Um, and that's what carried me to seminary. Um, I didn't have a vision for what, vocation I wanted after seminary, it was just this sense of like, oh, I'm empowered to do theology and interpretation myself. And I, my values can align with what I read in the Bible. And not only can they align, but they can convict me further and challenge me further to live more in line with my values. And um, yeah, and that's what led me to seminary. And just because of that experience of being validated, uh, being challenged um, for moral courage. Um, My chaplain was very social justice minded on on all topics, but she really, um, because LGBTQ inclusion was such a cultural moment um, when I was a young adult, she really helped model for us ways of thinking about it and engaging in institutions that weren't affirming and how to do advocacy, how to weigh the decision of whether to align ourselves with institutions that weren't in line with our values. Um, and those that those skills have served me really well, and that chaplain continues to be a really influential person in my life. And so as I approached my vocation, I did a stint as a congregational pastor. I did a stint in international peace and justice work um, but I always sort of held college chaplaincy in my mind as a thing I wanted to do. I used one of my two grad school internship years, um, at, uh, at at a university chapel. Um, so it's always been in my mind. There's pretty few positions, relatively speaking, as you can imagine. Um, so it always seemed potentially out of reach. So I'm really grateful to be in this context at Furman, to have a senior colleague with a lot of experience, um, to be somewhere that has, Really dynamic relationship with spirituality in lots of ways. Um, but yet also an affirming place. I mean, I think we have lots of places we can improve, but mm-hmm. there's a good foundation for that. So,
0: Thank yeah. You so much. That is such a beautiful story. And I, I love that theme of kind of self authorship and writing your own story. Um, because to me, like, that's kind of how I conceptualize faith is like, knowing that um, your beliefs and values might not um, line up with um, like what other people are telling you they should be and leading mm-hmm. into them, living into them anyways, because you believe right. that that's the, that's like the best and worthy cause for you to pursue. I think that that is beautiful. And um, I think
1: that that's what Jesus modeled, right? Yeah. So Jesus also spoke out against um, traditions and doctrines and practices of his day, um, in order to be a healing and liberative voice and leader. So I think that's what we're called to do. Not, not necessarily to unquestioningly follow our institutions. I'm still think that there's a lot of value in institutions and we can
0: also talk about that,
1: but, um, yeah, I agree. I think that's, that's the true model of our faith.
0: Yeah. And, um, thinking about my own experience while you were talking I I think mine was like quite the opposite of yours in the fact that I grew up going to church three times a week until I was 18 and my rebel phase was going to college and um, like pursuing and thinking about my sexuality and developing my identity as a gay man and I kind of rejected um, the institution of Christianity for for most of my time in college and I like, I know each experience of queer students is is different and unique and beautiful, but I know a a lot of my peers also have similar experiences. So Mm -hmm. how how would you say, like the queer students that you do engage with on Furman's campus, how do they engage, like where, what are some common themes that you see um, when working with those students?
1: Yeah, I see a lot of what you name as being your experience. I see a lot of trauma. Um, around religious community, faith community experiences. Um, And so I see my calling to be a couple of different things. I mean, one is to be, to simply provide a space where um, we try to make it as clear as possible that people are innately worthy and we do our best to I mean, we can also talk more about like, how do we communicate these messages and how can we do better at communicating these messages? Um, But to first of all, simply be a space where we are affirming, you know, we are a secular university with a super dominant Christian demographic and the leadership of our office are all mainline Protestant ministers. Um, So that's also, so there's a dynamics at play in that, but, um, because of our Christian identity and the Christian identity of so many of our students, we do do a lot of programming and messaging around um, inclusive Christian theology. Um, whether that's you know lectures or statements on our website or resources that we provide, or um, you know partnerships we have with other offices, we have this calling to speak into these student experiences that they are, despite whatever I would say lies that they were told potentially by their home communities that God's love is not conditional upon excluding their sexuality or gender identity or sexual experiences or decisions. Um, And for me, all sexuality and gender conversations are so interrelated and so connected to shame mm-hmm. um, when it comes to spirituality. And so for me, um, it's, I've, I've noticed a real lack of conversation around sexuality issues in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: sorry, I apologize. Oh, no. um, and so I think naming in trying to name really thematically that that we are all innately worthy, we are all beloved, that there is nothing we have done or could be or could see ourselves as um, that could take away any of that. Um, so there's programming, But honestly, a lot of these conversations are one-on-one conversations with people who don't feel comfortable um, engaging publicly around their identity because a lot of times because of their trauma, because of the ways they've been excluded. Um, Um, And this is everything from, you know, it's a constant, seems to me a constant permission giving to question messages that people were told by their churches or their families Mm. um to read the just all the things that I was encouraged to do you know you know inquire like well who who is the god that you think you've met whether it was in church whether it was in prayer whether it was in nature you know are there moments you've experienced of grace did they feel conditional um I remember like praying alone in my room as a you know, teenager and feeling a sense of being loved, you know, do any of these students have those experiences? You know, what would God say to you when you repeat some of the things that you were, the messages you were told in church, Mm -hmm. when you read the words of Jesus, what do you see? What themes do you see in the Bible? Um, And this is not to say that I'm invested in students choosing to remain to claim a Christian identity or to remain in institutions that are Christian. I I think that if I allowed myself to be invested in that, I would not be invested in their liberation as individuals
0: um, Mm -hmm. completely.
1: And so I try to make it very clear that despite my own identities and my own commitments, um, I don't have their life experiences. I don't have their trauma. um, I'm not navigating the world in their body in their families. And so everyone has to, I don't have whatever spiritual experiences they've had or not had. And so I just do my best to both share, if they're interested, my core beliefs about who I believe God to be, Mm -hmm. um, resource them with faith communities that share those beliefs and are affirming, um, and be equally as clear that they, that there are affirming spaces for them in secular spaces. There are ways for them to um, pursue recovery from spiritual trauma. Um, But I guess as a chaplain, I also, I do feel committed to at least putting on their radar um, for a lot of our students that come from conservative, homophobic, transphobic backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds, that that's not all there is. Like, right. I just want them to know that, um, not to feel as if there's any pressure to choose that identity or those communities for themselves, but to know that it's a possibility because that is often incredibly healing. Right. Um, so it's a lot, it's just a lot of, I mean, I probably have these conversations almost every week, honestly, oh. um, just given who oh. the demographic of our students are, it comes up constantly. And then, of course, there are groups of students for whom I have closer contacts. So we run a program called Exploration of Vocation and Ministry, Um, it's a very openly, um, we advertise ourselves as being a place for wrestling with spirituality. Um, It's not only for Christian students, we often get some atheists or agnostics or occasionally students who claim other faith traditions. and that space has been one where we have tried every year to bring forward conversations around sexuality and gender and give space for that. And we frequently have students wrestling with their own identities, sexual and, and orientation and gender identities in that space. Um, wow. So, And we have students for whom they think it's sinful. So, it's,
0: right. so a lot
1: of my work also seems like, okay, I work directly with individuals who are wrestling with their trauma and identity, but I also work with a lot of students around how, how are they interpreting the Bible? How are they understanding God's characteristics in ways that might be exclusive? What does that mean for their peers? What does that mean for their leadership in their future careers? And trying to equip students with more tools for understanding theology and scriptural interpretation, um, because that seems to me at l- just as liberative mm-hmm. for our LGBTQ students as working directly with them. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I think that that is God's work. I am just so um, impressed by you, and I wanted I wanted to share a little bit of where I'm personally at with um, hey. my journey. Um, because I have some questions about it, but I <laughs> I feel like I've reached this point where I recognize that, um, you know, I grew up 18 years. I was deeply invested in the Christian faith, and I think it's just as much a part of me as my sexual identity. Even though I've been ignoring it for quite some time, and I think my current journey and for the past couple of years has just been how do I how do I reconcile being gay and and being Christian and who are my people like I just don't I don't know who my people are and I don't know where to find them um and I've been reading so stuff. many
1: they're everywhere
0: <laughs> I know I just like can't seem to find them um, but I I'll know <laughs> um I've been reading so much about like um queer people that are Christian and how like I'm just been inspired by how creative and loving their their faith seems to be and um I wanted to just hear like what, what is like the most creative or um like out of the box form of Christianity that has inspired you or like who like who are my people? Okay, you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> well um this might not fit exactly into the answer of your question, mm-hmm. for which I have lots of other responses. And I think I was navigating these questions around. As as somebody who felt so outside Christianity and outside church for so long, I was honestly like longing to feel a sense of belonging somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I really wanted a denominational like hat. You know, so many of my peers and so many of your peers are really rejecting that. But for me personally, it was super meaningful having felt like an outsider. Um, But as I was sort of sifting through, okay, for me LGBTQ inclusion was such a core it was like the foundational piece of my wrestling with Christian identity. It was like, it was like a gatekeeper for me. Um, So when I was thinking about choosing a denominational affiliation, that felt so key. And this was, you know, back in 2006 or so, I was doing this wrestling and it was before several denominations had made some more progressive stances and, um, my chaplain was Presbyterian Church USA and I was familiar with several other denominations um, thinking I might become a religious professional I also kind of was thinking through like okay how does ordination work in these different you know also as a woman <laughs> there's a lot of denominations that um, you know are not friendly to women's or ordin- are not approving of women's ordination and and may or may not be more or less progressive around gender equality as well. So that was a factor, of course. But um, what it came down, I did end up joining the Presbyterian church before they made progressive stances around ordination and marriage for LGBTQ people. And for me, while that was quite a painful decision, after a lot of wrestling, my understanding of the way the church functioned is that the Presbyterian Church's polity in particular offers modes of advocacy and action and change um, in which I felt I could really have an impact um, whether or not I decided to become a minister. Um, The the form of the church is that's very representational. So you have representatives from congregations, both ministers and non-ministers who um, are representative of those, representative of the congregation, representative of the local regional body, the Presbytery, and they vote and make decisions based on, um, yeah, their conscience. Um, And so I was like, okay, I know, and there I found this community through my chaplain called Covenant Network, um, which was a lot of straight people, honestly, um, advocating on behalf of LGBTQ inclusion. And so for me, I really understood my home faith community to be this organization because my chaplain would take us to their annual conferences, which is funny if you knew a lot about it, because it's often these like very intense legal, like polity conversations and intense advocacy strategy conversations. And I was this college student just being like, okay, how does this work? Like, okay, if these people who are so committed to allyship, to inclusion, if they can be a member of this institution and be convinced in its potential for change and liberation, like maybe I could be part of this. Mm. Um, And so I really I really saw my was able to see a vision for myself as part of this particular institution, and actually within like six months of my ordination, our denomination passed um, gay ordination, and then within within a few years passed marriage, even before the United States did. Um, so it has ended up being an affirming um, institution, obviously.
0: Right. there's a
1: lot of room to grow, (laughs) but the official stances are affirming and it feels in line now with my values. So I think, um, and we just actually hosted an event last night with a trans Christian activist named Austin Hartke, um, who, and the question came up from students in the chat around what do you do when your faith community of origin, you know, is at, is you know, not affirming of your identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And and his, he had a couple of words of grace. Again, it was this reiteration that, you know, no one but you can make the decision around what the best spiritual home is for you. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, if you want, if it's meaningful enough to you to stick with a church or denomination that does not affirm your identity, you need to find other ways to feed your spirit. Um, you need to actively seek that out so that you are not being damaged by the lies that are being told to you. Um, And yeah, ways that where you are being filled and affirmed. Um, So I'm getting I'm getting away from your question. So creative community. So for me, it's like it has not been in the setting of a worshiping community so much. It's been like, okay, this advocacy community where we worship during the conferences too and everything, but it was like this advocacy community allowed me to understand a vision for liberation within the structures of an institution.
0: Mm -hmm. And then
1: I've also been involved in a lot of peace and justice work and faith-based peace and justice work. And, And for me, I felt so inspired when I felt like I was actually finding ways to sacrifice my safety and comfort for my values, for my Christian values, mm-hmm. um, I've a lot of my work has been around Israel Palestine, so those communities where where I've just been incredibly convicted by, you know, what does it look like for your values and your actions to truly align mm-hmm. um, at the risk of your safety and comfort? Um, right. Yeah, I I am familiar. I actually just did a bunch of this research for a student. Um, at Furman recently because there is there is a little gift of this pandemic world where anyone who wants to dip their toe into an experience of a worshiping community that's affirming or not just affirming but predominantly um, built and oriented toward LGBT folks like you can attend online worship services right now with a fairly low sense of vulnerability. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I gathered a bunch of um, examples of congregations that are built by and for LGBTQ folks and sent that to some students. Um, wow. So that's an option right now for
0: folks and I think I it would really love to, to see that list Kate. Sure. yeah that so cool that you did that.
1: Um, And there's lots of websites like queertheology.com. I don't know if you've come across that. Um, Every denomination has some kind of affirming organization. Um, Even denominations that have official, especially denominations that have official stances. Um, against marriage ordination have affirming organizations, even if they have to be under the radar. Mm -hmm. So um, those organizations exist. I think the one connected to my denomination, More Light Presbyterians, they have a great website. Um, They're really committed to intersectional liberation and justice. Um, And yeah, and that's another space where it's like, okay, around anti-racism values, like what does it look like to risk our safety and comfort um, even the life of our institutions to um, live out our values. And right. those are the conversations that most inspire me. Um, I haven't, just because of having been overseas several years, um, being in this setting as a chaplain, I don't feel like I've ever had the opportunity to really explore the um, my own preferences for a worshiping community um, in a diverse area, but a place like Boston where you are is gonna have like such a um, infinite number of opportunities um, either for finding affirming faith communities um, or I guess, I don't know a good word for it, but like communities that are built by and for LGBTQ plus folks, Um, I know those exist around where you are. Yeah. And again, because of COVID, there's this opportunity to really experience a lot of different communities.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing those resources. I feel like in my head, I've been like, oh, it's COVID. It's a pandemic. I can't explore those resources right now. But Opposite. yeah, I like haven't even thought about that. and I'm I'm so excited to look into it. So thank you for sharing.
1: Yeah, things. I'll share the ones that I've found.
0: Cool. Um, I wanted to ask one more kind of like big question before we wrap mm-hmm. up. But um, in my classes, we talk a lot about like systems of um, like white supremacy and uh, male dominance that are like hegemonic and normalized in our society. And I think um, Christianity has, you know, for hundreds of years been used as a tool by those kinds of systems to harm people and um, and keep people where in their place, so to speak. And um, I know that that infiltrates higher ed and, um, higher education in itself is kind of a privilege perpetuating system that that harms groups of people and makes them feel excluded and um, how like especially in the context of this year are you grappling with that or is that something you think about it sounds like you think about it um, pretty often but what are maybe some practical things that you do to kind of fight that like existing within that system you know
1: I think it's a conversation that's a little behind a lot of other privileged conversations. Um, not that there's more resistance to it than others, because there's resistance to every conversation about oppression systems. Right. Um, but I think it's just less on people's radar. So I do find a little more confusion and surprise around those conversations than I do, for example, when we host anti-racism conversations. Right. Um, so, we started um offering a religious literacy training last year um i adapted it from one out of nyu's global spiritual life office had to do a lot of adaptation because they could assume a lot more religious diversity in the room than we can at Furman, and they didn't address christian privilege at all which at an institution like Furman, founded by baptists um having you know 90 some percent of students identify as coming from a Christian background, um, it's really essential that, that Christian privilege is a part of that religious literacy conversation. So I adapted it quite heavily um, and then offered it to staff and faculty first. Well, I piloted it with several student organizations, um, but my own and some out of SDC, Student Diversity Council um din's dialogues so, like i tested it on them and got their feedback and stuff um so the point of the religious literacy workshop is to present religion as a social identity um like other social identities that impacts people's experience, sense of self, um power, mm-hmm. right? um and that that you can learn about it as a social identity as well as understand how to be an ally around people for whom religious identity is a source of um you know being marginalized right or being denied access to privilege so those were fascinating conversations and like a big piece of those workshops was discussing christian privilege um and yeah, like I said, I, I did encounter a lot of surprise and confusion around those conversations more than I do when we do anti-racism work. Um, but I think equipping Christians in particular and, and staff and faculty um, in particular, honestly, with that understanding of religious identity in the U.S., I also have benefited from having lived in contexts where religious identity was so cultural, it was so much seen by the society as a social identity, right? In Israel-Palestine, religion is quite clearly a social identity. It's a political identity as well. It's a national identity for some, Um, and it's not, nearly so connected to personal belief systems, right? Which is very different from the American understanding of religion. Yeah. And so simply getting people to move from thinking of religion as a set of personal beliefs to a social identity is a big cultural
0: jump. Yeah. Um and that I is think, so interesting. I yeah. I went on the northern ireland focus trip my spring break of junior year and it was very similar like the difference between the catholics and the protestants there it's like not just a religious identity it's
1: not just doctrine it's political geographical national identities right
0: crazy that we don't think about it at all that way in america it's just like you know your personal belief system you know
1: right yeah and i think as when we think about it as being an individual personal belief system then thinking of it as a system of power and privilege doesn't make sense, right. Right? right? So having to overcome that cultural assumption about religion is a huge first step to understanding how religion intersects with power and privilege. So that mm-hmm. to me seems like an important groundwork educational piece. Yeah. And then moving on to, okay, how has Christianity functioned in our society to, um, give some folks power and take it from others, give some po- folks privilege and take it from others. And there's a real lack of understanding about that. So I mean a further goal I have is to do a little more education around um, the history of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. There's occasional events around that, but um, you know, even given my theological education, I wasn't I was not um, educated about that so almost at all. And it's such a huge dynamic in our society. So, um, I feel like we have a lot more work to do on that, but, you know, we've brought speakers. We brought a speaker last year on, on Christian privilege in particular. Um, I COVID has sort of put a pause on my expansion of this religious literacy workshop offering. My, my goal was to offer it every semester for staff and faculty, and then just start offering it to students, potentially partnering with Dins Dialogues to do so, potentially starting to recruit uh, like our own student leaders to do it. Mm -hmm. I had sort of piloted it with, I had an interfaith scholar program last year and they started leading it for their peers. Um, I haven't figured out a sustainable way for that yet. It's always an issue of sustainability, but. Um, Yeah, my goal is to do this work of helping equipping our whole community to think about religious identity as a social identity Uh, and therefore to engage with it um, as a system that gives and denies privilege that we all are a part of and experience. Another piece of that is we have done a lot of work trying to understand and lift up the experience of non-Christian students. So I also got some grants to do some of that research. We like made a little film interviewing non-Christian students about their experience on campus. Um, That's part of the religious literacy workshop is sharing that film. Um, We've just, you know, done some focus groups. Of course, we support the student orgs um, that are non-Christian. you know, during your time as a student, we had some of your peers started a sexuality and spirituality um, uh, student org, which was like, so exciting to religious see. Religious
0: Rainbow, was that yes, it?
1: Yes, uh, isn't that the best?
0: I love it. I um,
1: So they co-sponsored our event last night. Um,
0: cool.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, I think that this is, there's a big leap for folks who come from American backgrounds to make and thinking transitioning from religion is just personal belief to thinking no it's, it's personal belief but it's also a social identity that fits within institutions and systems that give and deny privilege. Um, Yeah, and I think you know this comes up in our work as chaplains around the ways that staff interact with students ways that, you know, messaging that happens on campus. Um, you know, we, we think a lot about language. We think a lot about our spaces, you know, there's a huge cross on the top of our chapel. Right. Um, you know, what do we do with that as chaplains wow. mandated to care for the spirituality of all students? Like, are our Muslim students going to feel comfortable doing Friday prayers in our building? You know, right. I wouldn't blame them if they don't. So we, we try to be quite mindful of this and vocal in our wrestling with it. And in our, desire to be, um, to disrupt the privilege that Christianity still holds on our campus um, and in our society. But I think there's a lot of sort of foundational education that has to take place first too.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And I I appreciate your vulnerability in identifying that there is just so much work to be done and that we don't have all the answers because I feel like I'm in the same boat and we'll be uh, wrestling with that for forever forever yeah um i wanted to end on a question just to ask you how briefly how do you define spirituality i i think of spirituality kind of those moments when i felt most connected with myself um with others and then maybe a bigger some presence um Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know, like, I love hearing other people's kind of definitions of spirituality. Yeah, I love that definition.
1: I I think personally, I think of it as the pursuit of human wholeness and liberation, which I think includes the pieces that you named. I think that most spiritual traditions offer some similar gifts to people in the pursuit of wholeness and liberation. Things like the invitation to be in the present moment. You know, that's a gift of a lot of spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. I think another is the power of ritual. Um, the frameworks for making meaning is another gift of spirituality. I think the challenge to relinquish our need for control, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the commitment to, to a greater good, um, a connection to um, something beyond oneself. I think those are all different facets of gifts that spirituality has to offer us and for me they were they're all sort of under this umbrella of pursuing human wholeness and liberation which um for me involves the transcendent and the divine Um, yeah
0: can you say that again the gift of pursuing human
1: wholeness and liberation
0: i love that thank you so much for sharing that
1: I think from this sort of like um, guidepost for me in my sense of call is this belief that as I model, as I try to model my life after Jesus as a Christian, um, that my calling is really to help me and others be liberated from anything that binds us or separates us. And I think that the higher ed setting is really rich for opportunities for liberation from things that bind and separate us. And that includes, you know, shame or trauma around sexual and gender identities.
0: Yes. I think that that is such a great note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for
1: inviting me, Jesse. It's so lovely to talk to you. I wish that we'd had more of these conversations when you were a student, but I can understand why it was not the time for you.
0: Yeah, um, (laughs) me too. And maybe we can continue some conversations in the future too. Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah.